0: Yippie Kaye, Mr. Falcon. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. It's the Popcorn
1: Digest. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time Hans Gruber impersonator, Andrew Raphael. Oh god! No! <laughs> That's a deep dive reference there as well for a Hans Gruber impersonation. You're one of them, aren't you? (laughs) I really like how Alan Rickman can successfully play. He's an Englishman playing a German man, doing an impression of an American hick. And this week we're spending Christmas with the world's unluckiest action hero, as we ask, how can the same shit happen to the same guy twice? and then a further three more times. <laughs> That's right, we're watching Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Or as it's known in Germany, The Hard 2, The Harder. <laughs> but is this a Christmas well-spent? Find out after the trailer. Listen, honey, when you land, can we check into a hotel, we'll leave the kids with your parents, order some room service?
0: You're on, Lieutenant.
1: I see you in about a half
0: an hour, honey. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock Christmas Eve Is
1: there a cop on duty around here? Airport police Go get him
0: Jingle bells swing and jingle bells ring
1: Washington, D.C. International Airport What's this about? Oh, just a
0: feeling I have... Ouch! And you get those feelings, insurance companies start to go bankrupt. The tower's lost control. Instrument landing system is down. Backup systems won't come up. We've got blizzard conditions. Zero visibility. Attention, all controllers. We have a code red alert. There's panic in the air. This is a professional mercenary. You got the world's biggest drug
1: dealer on his way here now. What do you need, a slide rule to figure this out? You get the hell out of my office before I throw you out of my damn airport.
0: And terror on the ground. Who is this?
1: Who I am is
0: unimportant what I want is very important. Oh, we are just up to our neck in terrorists again, John. But for police officer John McLean, damn I it, I'm when I'm right. It's just another Christmas.
1: You're the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time.
0: Story of my life.
1: A preambient addiction, Bruce Willis is back as John McLean. An everyday blue-collar American cop who finds himself up against his deadliest foe yet. The marginally visible ball bag of William Sadler. However, unlike most American cops, McLean spends his days protecting civilians, shooting extremists, and befriending black people? How unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Die Hard 2. Die Harder. I mean, that is one of the best, worst titles ever, surely.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what the official title is because earlier on today I learnt that the subtitle of Die Hard 2, Die Harder, was in place early on in the marketing and then later it was dropped. And as you'll notice on the actual film, it's just known as Die Hard 2. Die Hard 2. But then subsequently on home video release, the Die Harder moniker has been retained. So it's very confusing. (laughs)
1: Yes, it's puzzled philosophers for years, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, Andy, are you a fan of the Die Hard series? Is this your first tango with Bruce Willis's John McClane everyday action
0: hero? Uh, Yes, I'm a massive fan of the Die Hard trilogy. Yes, yes, the Die Hard trilogy. (laughs) It's a
1: trilogy that joins the ranks of, you know, the Indiana Jones trilogy, the Star Wars trilogy. Yeah. The the best trilogies. (laughs) Uh yes as am I. Again also a huge fan of the Die Hard trilogy. Most I would say though of Die Hard 1 and Die Hard with a Vengeance. Die Hard 2 was always for me the lesser of the Die Hard films and yet retrospectively it's certainly gone up in my estimation in the years since. But when it was uh when it was just a trilogy it was always the weakest link in, that, yeah. in those core three films for me. Yeah.
0: But it's still my uh my third favorite. Yes. Of three. You yeah, have three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: If I'm absolutely bluntly honest, I don't think Die Hard 4 or Live Free and Die Hard is a terrible film. No, it's not. I no. think it's a competent modern action film, but it doesn't have any die hard feeling whatsoever for me. It's just
0: no. kind of a run of the mill action thriller. Starring Bruce Willis. As Bruce Willis of that time, I don't feel like he's playing John McClane at that point. And obviously even more so when you get to A Good Day to Die Hard.
1: A Good Day to Die Hard is still the only Die Hard film I have not seen all the way through. Oh, it's wow, the yeah. first film of that series that I have turned off halfway through because I just found it incredibly boring. Yeah, yeah. But yes, for me, Die Hard 2, Die Harder. I was actually... I was the one that said, let's do a couple of Christmas specials. We'll do a couple of Christmas-based films. And I knew when I (laughs) put that gauntlet down, I said, you pick one and I'll pick one. And I already knew I was picking Batman Returns. But in the back of my mind, I was actually going to pick Die Hard 2. But Mm. then I thought, no, Andy's going to pick that. (laughs) I know for sure Andy's going to pick Die Hard 2, Die Hard, and surely enough, you did. So, Andy... Take the reins, tell us a little bit about Die Hard 2.
0: Well, I mean, it's, yeah, for a Christmas movie, I mean, obviously, people always talk about the original Die Hard as being, you know, a Christmas movie, and for some, the ultimate Christmas movie. The debate rages on. Yeah, even though all these films were released in the summer, which (laughs) carries on from our (laughs) previous conversation about Batman Returns. I thought we'd talk about Die Hard 2 because it is set at the same time of year as the original Die Hard because they try and recreate that feeling. But not many people really talk about Die Hard 2. No. Because we generally tend to champion films that aren't talked about as much. I thought this would be a good pick because um, I've got a strange relationship. I think this is a, the Die Hard film I've probably watched the least out of the original three. Yes, same, same. And I've probably seen this more like 10 times as opposed to the other ones where i probably watched those about... 25, 30 times. Yeah. So yeah, it's the one I'm least acquainted with. It's that awkward one in the middle. Because obviously Die Hard One and Die With a Vengeance are both directed by John McTiernan. And they have continuity and they're bad guys. So this one is kind of the odd one out, even though it has probably more connective tissue to the original than the third one does.
1: Yeah. So moving on to the making of this film as well, because I we always do this every single episode. It's all about laying the context down. Let's give some history. For these films. So, I don't actually know that much about Die Hard 2 in terms of the context. There's very little out there. So, what I've done is I've done some research on, well, the making of Die Hard, where the character came from, other actors that were in contention for the role before Bruce Willis came along and made it his own. To begin, really, I think we have to go straight back to the source material. And Die Hard is actually based on a book, which is somewhat little known, I would say, in terms of. A trivia fact, not many people do regard Die Hard as one that is being based on a pre-existing material, Mm. but I would say it's very loosely so.
0: Yeah, very loosely. And that book was Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. There's a, a Frank Sinatra film, isn't there, which is based on a previous book which was The Detective, which was a film released in 1968. Die Hard as a film started off as a sequel to that film.
1: To the point in which Frank Sinatra had first refusal before yeah. they could offer it to any other person. So they had <laughs> gone ahead and, and written this story about uh, you know a 30-something middle-aged cop Who's uh, having marital difficulties, and the first thing that they have to go to is Frank Sinatra, who's like 70 years old. (laughs) Do you want to play John
0: McClain? How good's your Yippie Kaye motherfucker? Yippie (laughs) Kaye motherfucker.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, Frank Sinatra did decline. So I think that was to the relief of every single person involved with that film, with that script, because there was a short time where they were thinking, shit, he might say yes. (laughs) Frank Sinatra might say yes. They were actually like shopping the character of John McClane out to a lot of different actors. And I'm just going to go through the many actors that this went through before it arrived with Bruce Willis. So obviously, as he was offered every single role, from around this time Arnold Schwarzenegger was the uh, was first and then we have Sylvester Stallone Richard Gere Clint Eastwood Harrison Ford mm, I can see it being a Harrison Ford movie it's not the diehard we know but I can see yeah, it working yeah. as a Harrison Ford movie Burt Reynolds was offered Nick Nolte Mel Gibson Don Johnson Richard Dean Anderson Paul Newman and James Kahn they were all offered it and it eventually went to bruce willis almost as like a last ditch offer and they were so unsure about whether it was going to work (laughs) with him as well as an actor yeah that it was solidified by mcternan's then girlfriend who just happened to be sitting next to a representative from cinema score on a plane she asked them about getting some information from from audiences about whether or not Bruce Willis would be a draw for the film or not. And it, fortunately, it came back positive. That research came back to them as being positive. So two weeks later, he was cast. And then that's how John McClane came to be, essentially. Yeah, because previous to that, he was a uh, a sitcom star. It was it Moonlighting? Moonlighting, it was yeah. the, was the TV show he was in. And then the only other film that he was in as a lead was Blind Date. Mm-hmm which I remember watching one night at about one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I remember that being okay. It made me laugh a couple of times, but it's just a kind of wishy-washy romantic comedy. There's mm. no no hint of really the action star that Bruce Willis came to be. Yeah. But I would also say that that's the appeal
0: of Bruce Willis. Definitely, is that yeah. Well, at this time, anyway. I, oh, oh, 100% <laughs> at this time. I think time. he lost his funny bone in the 2000s. <laughs> um,
1: and I would say as well, back then, There's a clear divide, like much clearer than it is now. There's a clear gulf between TV star and movie star. Yeah, yeah. Like those are two separate worlds. Now with the production values that TV shows have, you know, you have a lot of TV shows looking like movies and a lot of movies looking like TV shows and actors are jumping between the two. You have a lot of prestige TV
0: that really attracts big name Oscar winners and that type of thing. There seem to be a certain group of actors that are now doing more tv work i'm just thinking of um say someone like nicole kidman i was 100 just thinking of her now fortunately as well
1: die hard comes out it's a massive success audiences respond to john McClane, the character in a big way and that really brings us up then to die hard Two. and i believe that you have some information on the making of this film and and how it came to be essentially from this point onwards
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, I've not really got any information on like uh, how it was greenlit. I imagine it was just the standard thing of this film has been very successful, therefore we need a sequel. Robot yes, executive. Yeah. <laughs> Signed our deadline. But it seems as if John McTiernan was involved to some extent or did actually want to make the film, but mm. was committed to directing Hunt for Red October. And I imagine the studio probably didn't want to wait for him yeah. to finish that film. So I imagine negotiations fell through fairly quickly and they had to find another director because they wanted to have the film in a similar slot two years later. So um, I'm thinking that this is a very kind of typical Hollywood sequel rush production thing going on. Yes. The screenplay for Die Hard 2 was co-written by Stephen E. Souza. He's the holdover from the previous film. And... This seems to be a a tradition in the Die Hard films, which A Good Day to Die Hard is the odd one out because ironically, even though it's the absolute worst Die Hard film, it's the only film that was written to be a Die Hard film or wasn't based off any (laughs) non-related material. All the other films are based off non-related material. I mean, Die Hard 4 is based off some sort of news article or something. And obviously, Die with the Vengeance was a a completely different film called Simon Says. Yes. But anyway, the second Die Hard was based on the novel 58 Minutes, which was published in 1987 and was written by a guy called Walter Wager or Wager. I think it's Wager. But yeah. um, the central plot of that is a guy who, where terrorists take over the airport, his wife is in a plane above, and he's only got 58 minutes to get her down before the fuel runs out and that's mm-hmm. the general premise of the plot which is pretty much repeated verbatim i think the main difference that they had is obviously the changing the character to mclean and i think they did quite a lot of work on who the villains were i think that was the main yeah. change that they made was the the context of the villains and what they were actually doing
1: do you have any information on like the changeover between john mcturnan and rennie harlan i mean how did Renny harlan
0: come to be involved in this film so rennie harlan was hired i think they must have been looking at up-and-coming directors and i think rennie harlan had been making some ways because prior to this he was involved for about a year on uh, on alien 3 yeah and had to drop out of that also he was responsible for directing nightmare elm street 4 which Uh was the most successful of all the elm street films i think yeah, financially so. Yeah, and um, he'd made this film called The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, which is a, a strange caper starring Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> I've never gotten the appeal of Andrew Dice Clay, to No, be no. But um, they'd seen The Dailies, so he was actually making <laughs> this film when they were considering him. So they hired him based on that, and obviously whatever, he you know, all the things he'd done previously, which wasn't very much. No. This is still kind of a situation where like we get now where you get directors who make really small films and then they get picked up to do this huge tentpole film because they can be a bit more controllable i think
1: i also think i wonder if the alien 3 development because he was on that film for a significant amount of time and i remember that he did want it to be very action orientated as well Mm. i do believe he was involved with the william gibson drafts and moving that on as well so There's obviously a familiarity there with 20th Century Fox and Rennie Harlan. They clearly have some trust in him and to have him on board for that version of Alien 3 for so long that I think perhaps that's part of the reason as well. Just, you know, that working relationship they already have even if it hadn't bore any fruit so far.
0: Yeah, I think so. But also, uh, it mustn't have been an easy decision because the way that it worked is that they wanted him immediately... Which All right. greatly impacted the post-production of uh, the film he was currently working on. So it, it meant that he had a situation of handling the post-production on the previous film whilst making this film. And it meant that Die Hard 2 and Ford Fairlane were edited simultaneously. And both films were released about two weeks apart. <laughs> so we had two films come out pretty much at the same time. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the other one is, is very much forgotten. And I think it's only got about 28% on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's obviously not a great <laughs> film or anything. Clearly. But it might have been impacted by this yeah. film because they had no time for the post-production on it. Well, I know
1: reshoots weren't a massive thing back then, but they still happened. People still mm. got pickup shots and things like that to re-record. I imagine this impacted that whole side of things completely
0: yeah this definitely was a a rush production because if you look at the dates yeah they shot this film from i think it started on the 28th of november 1989 oh wow yes and then they finished around mid-april 1990 and it comes out in like july july so when it did come out it was described as a a wet print which is what they term yes. for films that have been barely completed before um, going mm-hmm. on to release <laughs> like Sergei Eisenstein working in the
1: studio next door cutting the film that's being shown in the theater that's next door
0: at the same time so i think it's a testament that it's as good as it is actually considering the uh, very short turnaround and compromises yes. that they must have had to have made to be honest die hard too Die Harder is a film that
1: I would describe as good enough. Yeah. It's it's one of those <laughs> I completely understand the circumstances in which it's it was made. It wasn't ever going to be a great film like its predecessor, just because of what they wanted the film to act as as well. My issue is that they try and turn it into an event film. You know, like every couple of years we're going to get another Christmas based Die Hard film with John yeah, McClane yeah. in some other wacky situation. Yeah, and. I'm kind of glad that that didn't happen because right, mm. for a moment there, it certainly looked like it was going to. <laughs> but I would say even with all of that taken on board and it's kind of, you know, you do feel like it's just ticking the boxes of what they want a diehard film to be. Yeah. I do think it's still
0: just about good enough for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a strange one because I think making a a diehard sequel is a double-edged sword anywhere because really Die Hard is a film that, doesn't need any sequels it's very much self-contained and you can just leave it there and i think the problem they had and the thing i appreciated with this one is that they didn't try to completely recreate the first one it's very much a sequel that expands but in expanding you do lose a lot of what made the original very special Mm -hmm. which is obviously the claustrophobia And also the relationship between the villain and the hero via radio. Because he has very little interaction with anybody in that film. And it's all done over radio and stuff. So it is a very unique setup for an action film. And whenever you try and make a sequel to that and try and recreate that, then you're going to be accused of just ripping off the old film. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So I appreciate that they tried to do something completely different with this one. But again, it just becomes a... um, a more standard action film because of it that's it yeah
1: i agree with you as well because i like that with this one as you mentioned it's not just john McClane on his own against the villains again although it does often end with him in that situation yeah yeah but he's still in contact with people face to face that are re- reoccurring characters that he brushes up against and that type of thing my issue with that whole side of things is yes you do lose the claustrophobia and I'm okay losing that if there was a sense of immediacy about the situation. Mm. Like there's this whole thing with the planes being in the sky, and they do illustrate that you know terrible things can happen if the villains get their way, with Windsor Airlines crashing. <laughs> 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 but in a very very mean and nasty way, they illustrate yeah. that people can die here if John McClane doesn't defeat these villains. However, despite this, there's never any real sense of like. Immediacy. There's a moment later on in the film where John McClain's just kind of sat on the a stairs, just looking a bit defeated after the plane crash. And somebody comes up and says, You know, we've only got a, an hour of fuel left until your your wife's plane, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And everybody goes, Okay. Better, better, better do something then, I suppose.
0: And, they really stretch out the planes <laughs> flying above, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. And nobody on the plane gives a shit. Really. No. <laughs> to be Not honest. until like right towards the end. Yeah. yeah
1: if it had a sense of urgency kinetic energy to it like everything was moving on to the next thing like in a powerful kinetic way yeah the villains were more involved in that i think this whole thing would have worked more and still could have been different as well
0: yeah and it's strange that there isn't that because on the basis of what the novel's called and the the setup of the novel it does seem very much time-based Yes, so yes. it's called fifty-eight minutes. <laughs> so exactly, I, I yeah. mean, I've not read the book, but I imagine it's very much—it's six hundred pages long. Yeah, but I imagine—I <laughs> imagine the book is much more of a race against time than the film is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, that is something that definitely takes a backseat. I think the main problem with the film, really, I mean, if you boil it down to, as they—they um, decided to blow everything up, expand everything out, but I think they went too big because yeah. there's just far too many characters. And I think that helps to slow the film's pacing up because he's dealing with so many different people and there's like just characters coming in left, right and centre to think how many villains there are.
1: Well, I've written as well in regards to the villains. I've said it's actually an embarrassment of riches yeah, when it yeah, comes yeah. to the actors that they have involved for supporting characters. I mean, these are people like Robert Patrick, obviously, is uh, the one that stands out. But then again, you've got like William Sadler as the main bad guy. You've got Franco Nero as... Is... Esperanza. Yeah, Esperanza. Was it Valverde, that made-up place that yeah. they use in
0: all of these films? <laughs> it's the same one they use in The Commando because it's the same uh, writer and the same producer. So <laughs> That's it, yeah. yeah. But none of them really make an impact. You cut John
1: Leguizamo for, like, one shot. Exactly, I'm, I'm Robert <laughs> (laughs) patrick for one line before he gets shot as well Uh and these are actors that we know have presence Mm. they can have presence if they're allowed their own space within a film but they're just there as you say deliver one line get shot cannon fodder yeah there's just too much of that going on and i think about die hard the thing is i know you mentioned that there are too many characters and i do agree with you i think there are too many characters but i think die hard is chock full of characters but even the terrorists themselves there are some that are there for one line or two lines or even just a look I know who all of those terrorist characters are. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, I think just the the lack of impact or individuality between these. Yeah. I guess it's because the military as well, the kind of nondescript
0: military people. Yeah. There's a lot of ally characters as well, so... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's just down to the airport setting because, yeah, you would have lots of different people in charge in an airport, but you just don't get that feeling that they're on their own because in the original Die Hard, you're so up against it because... All the other allies are captured. Argyle is out of action because he can't hear anything. (laughs) He's just rocking downstairs with his limousine. You know what? People die that day and Argyle is having the time of his life. (laughs) I want to watch that film. Why don't they make a die film which is just about Argyle and his day?
1: Yeah, just him and that
0: (laughs) massive teddy bear. It can be like a buddy cop film. Yeah. The climax is when he rams into the van. Yeah, exactly. But um, the beauty of the original one is it's that relationship between McLean and Powell over the radio. Yeah. And you've got Powell as very much out of his depth as a police officer. And then mm-hmm. you get all the special forces coming on later and fucking it up. My favorite shot. This is what I mean about giving these
1: characters character. And this is pure John McTernan. But my favorite shot is of one of the SWAT team moving in. And as they're walking through the thorn bush, he pricks his finger on a yeah. thorn and goes, Ow! <laughs> it's like perfect yeah that already straight away in just that one little moment you've just summed up those individuals as characters it's brilliant yeah
0: this film doesn't really have um enough of that there is potential for that to happen yeah but i think it's more in the director than the script because i think a lot of those things would have been put in by john witton and on set it doesn't have the wit of the original yeah i think that's the main thing that's missing Cause even in like the one-liners and stuff, they're just nowhere near as good.
1: I've written one down and it says, What sets off the metal detector first? The lead in your ass or the shit in your brains? How does that even make sense as a yeah. as a line? As a shit doesn't set off metal detectors. What are you eating if your
0: shit sets off a metal detector? That's like a Biff Tannen line. <laughs> it really is. Make like a tree and get out and of get here. Get out of here. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, there's some fucking awful lines in this as well. Like, I've got a great one towards the start. Oh, yeah. This is a tag team. (laughs) Oh, oh, yeah. (laughs) During the luggage sequence.
1: (laughs) It's got loads of little bits like that where John McClane, he feels believable in Die Hard 1. And in this, he's leaning more towards cartoon character, like caricature of that. I think it is because they, as you say, you've just hit the nail on the head for me,
0: which is it doesn't have the wit no. To sell it, really. Yeah, it becomes more of an approximation yeah. of the original character as well. I mean, that it gets chipped away in each subsequent film, really. It kind of comes back a little bit more in the third one, I think mainly because John McTiernan's in charge. Yeah, I mean, I like Die Hard too, and I like this trilogy. I
1: can see it as a trilogy, but Die Hard with a Vengeance is the only film in this series for me that feels like a sequel to Die Hard. Yeah. Truly, yeah, yeah. it takes the character from that film and moves them on and does something different but also feels very John McClane. I want to very briefly just talk about this because we're really using this episode as a way to talk about the Die Hard series in general. But when Die Hard with a Vengeance came out, I absolutely adored that film. I do think it tapers off in the final act. It's clear that they had some issues with that. Yeah. And it obviously came to light later just how against the wire they were with shooting that as well. Mm. But for me... I was actually quite shocked years later to find out that Die Hard with a Vengeance wasn't that well regarded as a yeah. Die Hard film <laughs> yeah. as well. I'm, I'm, st- I still am to be honest. It's for me, at least half of it is pure brilliance, and mm. it does start to taper away at the end, but. It Still completely works for me, it's just still like four out of five film for me. Solid yeah, yeah, four definitely. out of five film for me. I mean, how do you feel about Die Hard with a Vengeance? I know I've just like enthused massively about it, but how do you
0: feel about it? Oh, as yeah, well? definitely. I mean, it, it baffled me, hasn't it? Got like a 50 odd percent rating, it, on... yeah, something like that. I'll just and it's much worse reviewed than the fourth one. And I'm like, what the fuck? seriously, that's holy shit, 59 percent. Yeah, absolutely right. But it's strange because when people talk about it, they do talk about it affectionately. Oh, yes, yeah, the one with Sam Jackson in it. You know, it's, it's like... Uh, yeah. and the main issue is that they filmed an ending that didn't work and they had to go yeah. back and it does... Suffer quite significantly at the end because of that, and it does. The ending does feel tacked on. Yeah,
1: the last ten minutes don't work. But I think it's one of those we've spoken about it on the podcast before, and we know I know that there is that specific study about films with endings that don't work and films with endings that do work. It doesn't matter really what has come before or how much you've enjoyed it. If the last ten minutes of a film don't work for you, you're more likely to give it a completely negative
0: review. But yeah, going back to uh, Die Hard Two, even though. Die with a Vengeance is probably a better sequel to the original Die Hard. I do like the fact that in this film, they try very hard to stick to the aesthetics of the first one. Yeah, yeah. I do like the cinematography because I do feel they've kind of, even though it's a different DP, mm-hmm. it's Oliver Wood this time who would become more known for doing the Bourne films later on. Yeah, I think he really does successfully recapture the feeling of the uh Jan de Bont photography from the the first one even though it's not the most exciting thing in terms of what it does with its villains and it's it's very stock in places and um, it's very much more of a standard action movie albeit a big budget one it is a very well-made film yes yeah yeah i would agree i can't fault it in terms of its technical aspects
1: well that's what i mean i think even as a studio picture even as a franchise film i think it's very competently made and because of that cinematography as well, because of the look that they've gone for, because we mentioned Live Free or Die Hard being this type of film as well, like a, just a, a competent action film that doesn't do anything special, but just about works and then falls apart at the end. With Die Hard 2, I think because of the cinematography, it kind of lends it an authenticity within the series that that film doesn't have, the Live Free yeah. or Die Hard doesn't have. And obviously because the character feels more authentic, even if he's not as you know witty as he was before. I will say I completely agree with you on that front up until just a point which is, although on a large scale the action does for the most part work, I think it's missing the the consequence of violence that John McTernan always pushes across in his yeah. films. Yeah, yeah. There's a lack of impact. And sometimes, like for example, the fight with John McClane and one of the soldiers outside in the snow when he picks up the icicle and stabs him in the eye, which is a great death. I love that Yeah, death. yeah. But the fight itself, you can see that they're trying to make it into the equivalent of the fight between uh, what's his name in Die Hard One, the blonde haired terrorist who's the brother of uh everybody knows the one I'm talking about.
0: Oh yeah, the um the guys in Living Dialights. Exactly, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. They try and do it as like a moment like that, but this the shot is just so static and they're mm. just kind of rolling about on the ground. There's no I feel like it's missing part like moments like that. However, as I say, it does still hit the right boxes at the right times with, like, the deaths is great. Like, I love that. Like I say, that icicle through the eye
0: really, really redeems that whole section for yeah. me. Even though it's it's very competently made, I think there's, in the way it's been directed and, and even yes. written, it really does lack tension at times yes, yeah, because yeah. it doesn't really ramp it up. And the sequence that I have the biggest issue with is the very first action sequence, which is the sequence in the, in the luggage conveyor belt. Yeah. Because it occurs just way too soon in the film. It's like thirteen minutes in or something. And the tension hasn't been ramped up enough yet. No. With a film like this, you really need like the gears to get into motion in terms of the villain's plan and get it locked in. Yeah. And have John McClane be unaware of what's well, be aware but more on the peripherals and, and allow things to lock in and get moving. He's already onto them
1: before they've even like st- started yeah (laughs) solidified their place and taking control
0: yeah it's a bit too soon
1: it is and i do like as well in those first like 13 minutes the introductions everybody gets an introduction into the film i'd like the way it does introduce some of its characters but then apart you know talking about talking about introducing some
0: of its characters (laughs) (laughs) we're not only introduced to characters we're introduced to characters body parts as well yes exactly they have their own separate introduction (laughs) Yeah, so I watched it with Ali yesterday
1: as well, and I, I was sure to rewind and pause it and say, I was like, you know, it was like the Zapruder film
0: for me. I was like, there, there's his ball bag. Look, can't you see it? It's his ball yeah. bag. I was saying this to Jess, and it's like, how the fuck do you know? A, the thing that just guys just talk about <laughs> <laughs> when we talk about the diehard films. Like, yeah, oh, do you remember when you see a uh, thingy's ball bag in it? He was like, yeah.
1: <laughs> but she was like, I can't see it. And I'm like, there it is. Are you blind?
0: It's the stories that guys tell over campfires. It
1: really it really is, yeah.
0: <laughs> Gather round, children. Do you remember the story of William Sadler's ball bag? <laughs> Billy ball bag, his friends killed him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Billy Ballbag. Oh, dear. Uh, yeah, but what an introduction. Yeah. Certainly a memorable one. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a Rennie Harlan special. That yeah. One. That was his idea.
1: He is a bit of a weirdo. He does have a... Um... He has a thing like Quentin Tarantino, where he's all about the feet. Well, he is to... from
0: Finland, so. <laughs> <laughs> How
1: do you feel about Rennie Harland? Because I, I will say as well, just speaking about him as a director, he's one that is laughed at quite significantly. But mm. I I have a softness for Rennie Harland, and I don't think he's the best director or best action director in the world. But I don't know. I think of like the long Kiss Goodnight works for me, and deep blue sea works for me for i think
0: i was one of the only people that actually went to see Cutthroat island at the cinema i've st- still never seen it Are we know i actually went it, no. to the cinema to see that film i'm one of the 20 people that went to see it in britain I <laughs> how often is it that we're on the
1: opposite sides of this yeah. that you went to the cinema to see a film that nobody saw yeah because <laughs> i remember cutthroat island coming out and i do remember actually even around that time there was i will not say hype for it but they were certainly trying to drum up publicity. It was was in the magazines I was reading. It was on the TV. And then nobody saw it. I remember wanting to see it and then just not seeing it. (laughs) (laughs) Like every single other person but you.
0: Yeah. yeah. How
1: was it? What was it like? It's all right. (laughs) Is it
0: Popcorn Digest? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. To be honest, I've not actually seen it since that first viewing at the cinema. So I can't imagine it had a great impact on me considering I never actually went to watch it again. Yeah. I don't remember it being terrible, but I was only like 8 years old when I saw that film, so Exactly. Yeah. You know, I was 8 years old <laughs> watching a film with parrots yeah. in, so it's going to please me whatever. It's where your fetish was born. <laughs> and um <laughs> yar. <laughs> but yes,
1: moving back to the the world of Die Hard 2 Die Harder. yes, let's talk about William Sadler for a moment now that we've we've talked about his balls. Let's now talk about his character. <laughs> so we spoke about this when we were covering the bill and ted yeah bill and ted's bogus journey and i really think it's worth talking about now but william sadler love the guy one of my favorite actors absolutely love him in everything that he does even if it's bad Mm -hmm. and i would say though that this is one of his weaker performances and i don't think it's his fault i think a lot of this comes down to the directing and the writing yeah but i feel like he is a guy that can play big characters He's a guy that has a lot of presence and a lot of charisma. And he doesn't really display any of it or is given the opportunity to do so in this. I think it's the whole, like... Because they've gone down this road of them being military exiles, they're all based in order and regime, but they don't really have any presence because of that because they're all so very strict. I'm not saying that they all need to be Hans Gruber level of like flamboyant or flamboyancy, but I still want to have something like even if it's menace i want more menace more theatricality
0: in that menace as well yeah i know william sadler's gone on record for saying that the scene in which he's impersonating someone from the tower and bringing the windsor aircraft down is his favorite sequence because he was yep. allowed to be a bit more theatrical because he's that's the best impersonating part. somebody and there should have been way more of that because with an actor like william sadler you could have made a villain that was just as compelling as Hans Gruber. Yeah, he's certainly the actor that could sell that completely. But yeah, it's all been toned down and stripped back to this sort of stock military type that he's had to play. And, um, you know, he's good at playing it. Yeah, yeah. It's not very interesting. And that's it. I 100% don't believe that it's anything that William Sadler
1: is doing. What I feel like when I watch it is that from a filmmaking point of view, they're scared of competing with Hans Gruber and failing. Mm. So much so that they've gone too far in the other direction. And I think, yes, sure, I absolutely agree that after Hans Gruber, the right idea is to do something different. But that doesn't mean that you need to neuter your character to this point. And I feel like they've just been too scared that those comparisons are going to come up. But as a result, that character doesn't make an impact, really.
0: Yeah, and it's strange as well, because going back to his ball bag, how they set him up... (laughs)
1: Is yeah, to right. be this
0: kind of weird yeah. ass character and they don't play on that at all. Yeah, if he's like regimented, I want to see a like evil eyes, kind of crazed. Yeah. He's got wacky ideas, he's You're expecting him following that intro scene from to start doing some weird moves on his yeah. people when he gets pissed off. But it never happens.
1: And the fight as well. It, because they introduce him that way, you're waiting for that fight. And when it does yeah. eventually come with John McClane, it's on the wing of a plane. So you can't really do much with that. No, no. I think there needed to be like a real one-on-one, drawn-out, layered fight sequence between them where... John McClane's just getting his ass handed to him, much like in Die Hard. But like he's getting his ass handed to him, and has to think his way out of this situation. Yeah, yeah. Whilst taking the beating of his life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like the fight on the plane wing, but yeah, because it's on the plane wing and it's moving, there's only so much that they can do. Exactly, yeah. I have no issue with it culminating with a fight on a plane wing. In fact, the ending of the film, I would say it probably wins the award for being the second best climax of the series. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree. Because even though With a Vengeance is a better film, yeah, it falls down in its climax. Whereas obviously you can't beat the climax of the original, but it definitely comes second, I think.
1: Well, I would say that it shares something in common with the original as well, in that Whereas the original ends with everybody's favorite character, you know, what's his name? Powell. Like his whole arc in that film is learning to shoot people again. And <laughs> oh, like that's, yeah. his, that's his arc. He's a cop that perhaps shouldn't have a gun mm. because he shot a kid. So perhaps that's the right thing for him not to have a gun. Yeah. And it ends with him finally overcoming his fears and murdering a son of a bitch.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about this earlier and I would say Die Hard as a perfect film apart from that last minute. I was literally going to say the same thing to you that I've written in my notes, that Die Hard
1: is a perfect film, but one point.
0: Yeah, because I'm not adverse to having that kind of false ending, but I think it's the way that it's played yeah. that makes it problematic for me. And yeah. it's not just problematic because of the, the implications of it, as you just described. It's kind of also problematic because it over-sentimentalizes it as well, like in the way yeah. that it's shot with all the slow mo and things and the kind of music that they use and it's like yeah. oh it's very 80s it <laughs> really like, is, really yeah. dates the film because it's like <laughs> it's very much you're in sort of back to the future territory in terms of 80s-ness that's it yeah <laughs> and yeah that'll be the only thing i would have done differently
1: if i remember rightly as well they use a cue from aliens for that moment it's yeah. a james horner cue because um I believe Michael Kamen and John McTernan had a bit of a falling out whilst making the music for Die Hard, even though he did come back to do with Vengeance. They had a little bit of a of a tiff for that moment mm. of the film because uh, John McTernan ended up using the temp track, which was from Aliens. Ah, the dreaded temp track. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> but much like that, because it has that moment that is tone deaf. I like yeah. that Die Hard 2 also have its, has its own moment that's tone deaf where it kind of ends with everybody being really you know, happy and let it snow starting and stuff like that yeah. and the camera's like really pulling away and everybody and nobody mentions the fact that an hour ago a plane full of you know like 100, 100 people. or so English people just fucking nose dived into it it's the, all right like, they're English people maybe a few hundred meters from it. oh yeah <laughs> it's like come and just warm your hands
0: over this burning carcass over here that sequence is so well executed in the moment that it is but then it's just completely forgotten about 10 minutes later
1: <laughs> yeah it is it's quite funny it does it so well with establishing that doll as well like having the kid with the doll on the plane and then having john mcclain pick it up out of the wreckage mm. so yeah it's very strange that immediately after i
0: think they've gone oh this is a bit dark let's just pretend it didn't happen yeah <laughs> it's yeah. christmas I know that the air industry did not like this film whatsoever. Oh, shocker! Yeah. (laughs) And uh, that's also the reason why all the airlines are fictitious. There's no real airlines in this film. Yeah. I mean, who would want the name attached to this film just
1: as like a a little reminder that... (laughs) British
0: Airways.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I would say this is what the film does right. I like these type of films that do it. Now, if you're in the know, you're going to see through the ideas that this film presents... But I know that there's a lot of people within, you know, aviation and that type of thing that say, actually, this wouldn't work if it was to happen. We would still be able to land the planes via other means that we have on board our crafts. And I'm like, yeah, I okay, I completely understand that. But I think that this film sells that idea, as mm. unfeasible as it is to a <laughs> layman like me, it sells it really quite well. Yeah, I could say my only thing is I just wish there was more tension and urgency with it yeah we forgot to mention as well that talking about windsor airlines it's piloted by everyone's favorite <laughs> everyone's favorite <laughs> enterprise officer Colm Meeny. yeah i don't know why he just didn't transport everyone out of there yeah i mean the sequence is great apart
0: from the portrayal of anybody english <laughs> it's just fucking horrendous yeah. <laughs> tea and crumpets yeah it's properly like an american's view of what English people are and they fuck it up so badly yeah it's like borderline racist because <laughs> it's that bad <laughs>
1: that said i have heard people say about our podcast uh, some of our american listeners that when we say bits and bobs it yep. makes them feel very british indeed <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> haberdashery <laughs> yeah there are quite a few like um leaps of faith technically with this film like you were saying before and the, and the big one is the film's climax because i was reading before that the whole gag of the fuel dump the fuel and then yeah. john mcclain setting light to that that wouldn't happen because apparently <laughs> uh jet fuel has a much lower flash point than uh, gasoline if you did that it wouldn't set a light oh right i think mean, it takes an incredible amount of heat to uh, ignite it which probably is why they use it for planes. I was about safety. to say, yeah, that's probably why it's used for planes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, the whole end part of this, uh, it's one of those kind of like Mythbusters things, yeah. isn't it? Like the whole end of this film is debunked. <laughs> to be
1: honest, you say the whole end of this film, I think you could probably debunk the whole beginning and middle as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just don't have the knowledge to do so. Yeah, There's a whole section of this film that we haven't actually discussed yet. No. And that is the whole subplot involving yeah. Holly and Richard Thornberg, Dick Thornberg, the reporter from the
0: first film. What's your opinion of that, Andy, would you say? Because um, I have thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense for Holly being there because one, it's obviously part of the original novel that it was based on. So that's something yes. they've taken from the novel. So that's fine. And also it makes sense that he would be waiting for her to arrive.
1: Like yes. that whole setup
0: is fine. Yeah, but the fact that they try and they have Dick Thornburg on there as well—that's the point at which I'm broken on that. Yeah, yeah, it's very forced to have young Donald Trump on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would
1: say like for everything that it puts across, and it, the film does keep on reminding us of this whole thing in a very kind of scriptwriter winking at us kind of way of like, yeah. how can the same shit happen to the same, same guy twice? twice. I've done this before. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I buy it. I buy it for John McClane to be there if Holly's on the plane. But the thing that breaks that whole aspect of the film for me is Dick Thornburg being there too. That's the point in which the film, the whole setup breaks for me. He shouldn't, we don't really need him there. I get that there's something (laughs) for Holly to do on the plane, but he's the bit that I don't get. I don't buy it. And because I don't buy that, everything else starts to falter because of it.
0: It's the bit that just shouts, we're in a sequel. (laughs) I'm here in sequel mode. All your favorite characters again.
1: (laughs) Well, I wrote down that it does have that feeling that a lot of things are doing now where it's like a TV reunion special. It's like we have all of your favorite characters back and including, you know, a fucking Twinkie.
0: Oh man, I'm going to say that Sergeant Al Powell is sponsored by Hostess. <laughs> <laughs> They're really getting that product placement yeah. in there. I mean, that's another story, isn't it? That's the famous Black & Decker story, where um, Black & Decker sued Die Hard 2.
1: Oh, you've got to tell me this, because I need to know about it. I don't know yeah, the Black story. Yeah, they tried to sue
0: him for about $150,000 or something, because apparently... Yeah, it was a product placement deal. I don't think any money has exchanged hands, but basically there was a scene in the film that they cut out, which John McClane uses a Black & Decker drill to drill holes in something to get into a a vent pipe or something like that. And um, they cut the scene... Black & Decker had invested a lot of money in tie-ins. So uh, when they shit, discovered yeah. that the scene wasn't in the film, they tried to sue the uh, Fox or somebody for um, breaching their contract, even though there was nothing. I don't Ooh. think it, it went... It didn't go anywhere because apparently no money had changed hands in terms of them being able to use the Black & Decker brand or anything like that. So, right, got you. But it's just a famous thing that... Oh,
1: right. <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't know about that. Famous product
0: placement case.
1: Wow, it's not often you get a film of this type refusing... To use a product for, for placement in a film.
0: Yeah. Normally, it's more like come one, come all. So yeah, there's plenty of product placement in this film when, if you look out for it, though. There's plenty of, like, watches being uh, put on display as well. There's a yeah. few close-ups of, like, watches. Mm. And uh, and but is it Pacific Bell oh, yeah. telephones, yeah. even though they only service California, even though it's <even they're laughs> yeah. supposed to be Washington. Because that big atrium is um, actually a terminal. I've actually been to it. It's actually a terminal in uh, LAX. Oh, really? I've got it written down, actually, what it is. That makes sense, it's, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, Tom Bradley Terminal. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, other parts of it doubled. And then, yeah, that's Stapleton. And then, yeah, just a fuckload of model work, which some of it yeah. I didn't even realise was model work. It's that good. You know what I've just thought of? i mentioned before that I said it's like a TV
1: reunion special in terms of, yeah. like, the characters coming back. But actually... This is a very localized reference for us. Yeah, It's actually more like a Red Nose Day
0: reunion special.
1: Yeah, it really is. <laughs> you know, it, it's it got really that is. feeling.
0: Yeah, it's like that um, when they do those um, Richard Curtis reunion ex- mini films. Exactly. Like yeah. the Love Actually one and the Weddings in a Funeral one. <laughs> yeah, it really is like that. The weirdest one is the Al Powell one, though, because he gets such high billing for what yeah. is like two minutes of screen time. Of which yeah a minute of that he's just eating a twinkie <laughs> <laughs> it's an easy pay job that one yeah you get free twinkies
1: i like as well that bruce willis is flirting with the receptionist and <laughs> like he's got like a busted open eye he's got scabs all over his hands he's on the phone and she's just like always batting her eyelids at him oh uh, yeah it's it's very 80s <laughs> yeah and she's only getting like half the conversation as well but she's still like laughing at his one-liners like he's on the phone and it's like just silence and then she hears him say, Yeah, they put too much chlorine in the pool and she's like, <laughs> 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 like you didn't hear the setup. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the bit where she flirts with him and says, Do you want to go get something to eat? I feel like is it's a bit like massaging Bruce Willis's ego a little bit there.
0: Yeah, definitely. I'm not
1: saying that Bruce Willis isn't with how his sexual charisma and chemistry on screen during these, these times. Man, what happened to Bruce Willis? Even watching this film, what happened to Bruce Willis? I remembered a couple of years ago, I watched 12 Monkeys and it made me cry. And it wasn't specifically anything that was sad in the film. It was a moment in which Bruce Willis is in a car and he's talking about how bad it is in the future and how wonderful it is now and he's crying he's listening to the radio he's going through the radio as well and he's kind of like playing about with everything and it made me realize like oh man what happened to this version of bruce willis and i got a little bit teary-eyed i was thinking this guy could act and he, he was like the real deal he had everything he had like the charisma but also he could be an action hero but he could also do drama he had real acting chops as well and somewhere along the line, he just stopped caring. He stopped pushing himself. I think the last film that he
0: ever did anything was Looper. Yeah, I think he does sometimes try with it's like a independent production, like I'm thinking, um, like Moonrise Kingdom Anderson. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, something. yeah, But if it's anything like just like actiony, I'm trying to think. Has he done anything big budget recently? I can't. He came big back big for Glass, and even in that,
1: he he's not he's not terrible in it, but he's still just. He's not doing anything in it to push himself. And to a point in which I think there's a decision made during the making of that film to start marginalising his character. Yeah. And you can see that like there's action sequences in that film. And it only has very little action. But there are sequences in that film where it's clearly a body double. Because yeah. Bruce Willis <laughs> wasn't going to be there for that.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to do a bit more reading into why that is. But he's just done endless streams of director dvd fodder. And it's just fucking terrible like. yeah
1: films where he's clearly being like shot over a weekend yeah all of his stuff and he's, he's not in shot with anybody else and everything else is a double a ball
0: double. yeah and it's not even at the nicholas cage caliber either because at least nicholas no. cage throws in a, a quirky performance or something like that whereas yeah <laughs> bruce willis is just fucking boring it does make me think maybe there's
1: some sort of like tax reasoning or mm. something like that like he has to be in stuff it's not just a matter of holding out for the good films. He's yeah. just having to be in film after film after film.
0: There's something in that.
1: But like you say, Nicolas Cage, at least he's still doing it in a way in which he's like, well, you know what? I have to do these terrible, terrible films one after the other, but I'm going to do them in a way in which I'm getting something out of them as well. <laughs> so It's going to be fucking wild. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I read an interview with him and he's very, like, he's very upfront. He knows about what type of film he's making, but he's like, from what Nicolas Cage says, Every film that he approaches, no matter what it is, it's still a film. It's still a paid job. And I'm still going to give it a performance because that's what people are paying me for. Mm. And it's like, you're not just getting the Nicolas Cage name. Yeah. I like Nicolas Cage. Yeah. (laughs) Started off as a conversation about Bruce Willis and it ended with me saying, I
0: like Nicolas Cage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It says everything... But um, yeah, it's a strange thing with the characters in this film, especially the returning ones, because some of them shouldn't be there. But at the same time, I do like that they're there. It's really forced, but I do like that Thornburg subplot because it just further reinforces what a fucking knobby is. Yeah. (laughs) I just like that aspect of him chasing a story and him the one causing the panic. Him getting tasered is quite amusing as well. So it's not all bad, even though it really shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be there, but I will say that they do make it successfully part of the plot
1: in a way that isn't too forced in that, obviously, he's got a sound guy on the plane that can listen in on the uh, the cockpit comms, Mm. and then that's how they discover that there's terrorists that have overtaken the airport, and it's through Dick that actually that information is leaked back to the terrorists, Mm -hmm. that everybody's in know of this, that everybody's in conversation with each other. Also, man, Holly is sat next to a very crazed old woman that likes to taser a dog. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah.
0: that's really something. That's like a old woman written by Shane Black kind of It thing, is, isn't it? Yeah. Is, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm just trying to think of these other characters because some of the new characters are very cartoony. Obviously, the biggie. Is Carmine Lorenzo. Oh, God. We need to talk about because he is action movie captain. He really is. He's like, I want your badge. (laughs) Yeah. He really should be making an appearance in in Last Action Hero. Like, he's that cliche. Yeah.
1: Smoke coming out of his ears. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No. Oh, God. Absolutely. And to be honest, I don't know why, in my mind, I've gotten the actors and characters mixed up. Between the you know, the his cousin that's was oh, yeah. supposed to have given him the ticket at the beginning, who's uh, Joey's dad from Fred. Joey's dad, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um for some reason I'd got those actors mixed up in my head as well. But yeah, it has certainly one too many of them. But that what's his name? Lorenzo character, the chief. Yeah, yeah. The chief of the airport. Obviously he is a cardboard cutout, but also I think he swears too much in a way in which it's the writers, as you mentioned, the lack of wit. So they're just throwing him F-words as many times as they can to try and make what he's saying more impactful because he's not really saying anything that's too interesting.
0: So it's like, yeah. oh, I'll just make him angry and swear a lot is kind of his whole shtick. Yeah, you can tell that it, the script probably needed another pass by Shane Black. Um, By Shane Black. Yeah. <laughs> to do something. Uh, yeah, it definitely lacks yeah. wit. I mean, from the first scene onwards, I mean, like, John McClain's retort at having his card pulled away is son of a bitch. That's a proper placeholder line. Yeah. Probably should have been rewritten at some point, and they haven't <laughs> had time to do it. So, yeah, the whole film is very much like that. It does have its moments, but there are just too many times where you're waiting for some really witty line. That doesn't yeah. come,
1: and you've also got that weird character that's in the um, in with Marvin. the ventilation. Yeah, Marvin. Yeah,
0: yeah, he's a bit of a weirdo, isn't he? <laughs> Does he live down there? Uh, like, so, he's... Some sort of subterranean mole person. Yeah, he's definitely got some kids captive somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh um,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. I find him very unnerving, actually.
1: Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Oh yeah. god. Yeah. He's definitely um, a Stephen King creation, isn't he?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. But yeah, man, so many characters. (laughs) I think the thing that muddies the waters slightly, and obviously they're thinking it's a really clever twist, but you've got Colonel Stewart and his gang, Esperanza on the plane that they keep Mm coming back to, which feels very disconnected from whatever else is going on. Yeah. And then they pile on all these sort of, um, was it General Grant? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. And his crew that they obviously think is a really clever twist and everything, which doesn't really hold water for me because I don't know how, if they're calling the, the Marines or whatever, that particular platoon is the one that they're going to pick. Everything hinges on that as well.
1: I was about to say, because it, it does feel like it hinges on it, like the whole plot. It also hinges on there being a storm at the time in which this character is being transported as well. <laughs> Yeah. That's another thing that I wanted to mention which is there's so much coincidence in the setup as well. Like it's so lucky for them that there's this fucking crazy storm, worse than anybody's seen for a while. Yeah. At the same time which is exactly what the terrorists need. <laughs> I'm glad you've mentioned it because this is something I, I wanted to go over. I don't actually get the relationships between these characters, you know, all no. all of the villains, these groups of villains. I don't know how this uh, special unit that's been brought in how they relate to William Sadler's unit. I know that those two, like, uh, William Sadler was trained by Grant, but I don't know how they've been, like, flipped, essentially, the whole unit.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't feel like anyone's motivation is strong enough to pull yeah. off this whole scheme anyway. <laughs> feels very uh, far-fetched to get this one guy <laughs> Yeah. and then think that they can just fuck off and, and have no one bother them. I mean, it is based on, like, Real life stuff. Yeah, uh, General asperanza is based on the Panamanian General Manuel Narayga, who was overthrown for drug trafficking in the 80s. And also it's partly based on the um, Iran-Contra scandal in the mid-80s as well. Yeah, yeah. But their scheme is, is cool, but incredibly convoluted. <laughs> yeah, really. And it seems to have a lot of different parts to it that I don't understand. I, I get the whole them controlling the tower and stuff but then everything else is kind of it's like they thought that would work yeah that they would just hand them the plane and they would be able to fly like what happens when they fly off yeah <laughs> they're <laughs>
1: like, not getting away no it's like with the moment that they get in the air they're like so what next is like i
0: haven't thought this far it's not even as if they're in like florida or something and they can get into like cuban airspace or something straight it's like, like that yeah. yeah they're in fucking washington you've got Thousands of miles before you can get to any kind of safe haven. <laughs> yeah, the, the plot is so flawed in that way. It's cool when you're watching it, but then when you stop to think about it for five seconds, it doesn't really yeah. work.
1: Like you say, I, I like the whole taking over an airport thing and um, having the planes in the sky and holding them at ransom, essentially, really, by taking away their ability to land safely. I love that setup. That setup's absolutely fine. I just... I feel that the motivation for doing so is all very, very wishy-washy and yep. not really ever communicated in a way that's completely understandable to myself. But what I would also say is, of all of the parts I think that it should have copied Die Hard, I'm always a firm believer in trying something different, and this film tries mm-hmm. enough different that, it, that I appreciate. But that is one thing that I wish it would have copied, is because Die Hard's villain's plot, Hans Gruber's plot is very simple yeah I and mean, it's something that's always changing but we as an audience are always in to know what the plot is how it's developing and then eventually what his real motivations are for doing so as well that it's all it's all money mm-hmm. i don't have that with these villains i don't really know what the end game is
0: yeah and also the fact in the original they're clever enough to cover their tracks and make them think that they're dead that's what i mean
1: it's like once they take off what's the next step for you guys because it's not good
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think this film's version of that is having that twist of the Grant character the Grant and, yeah. and then thinking, oh yeah, there's actually another unit and they're all in on it and stuff. But I think they think it's a really clever twist. It is interesting. I do like how they, you know, they... they do the blanks. Oh, well, that's another thing that is a debunked thing, that apparently those kind of guns, you wouldn't just be able to load blanks in live rounds that quickly because they're automatic weapons, so it wouldn't work like that. So yeah. um, they're very much stretching uh, credibility with
1: this plot. <laughs> to be honest as well, like whenever you see blanks used in any of these films, one thing that's always overlooked is the fact that blanks can kill you. Yeah, There's, You're still... <laughs> You're still yeah. firing something out the end of the gun as well. So, if at a close enough range, a blank is going to to kill you.
0: Mm. <laughs> See, when he's <laughs> shooting Lorenzo, it's like, yep, yeah, he's going to be like severely injured. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think one last thing for myself that I want to discuss is something that I feel like never really gotten enough credit for the Die Hard films. And yet, for me, it's a massive part of its identity as a series. And again, this is just talking about the trilogy, but Michael Kamen's music. Yeah. I know that, as mentioned, there's a piece in Die Hard that is replaced by um, a piece from Aliens, James Horner music. But I actually think that Die Hard has a real strong musical identity. I think Die Hard 2 repeats too much of the first film's cues without really adding much new. There are no new elements really added apart from what it adds to... um, the villain, but I don't think it makes much of an impact. I think Die Hard Three has more of its own musical identity. Yeah, yeah. But I think Michael Kamen does solid work for this series. It doesn't get enough kudos.
0: I definitely prefer his scores for Die Hard than um, his uh, Lethal Weapon scores because although yeah, I like yeah. them, they are incredibly cheesy in a charming way. But they are like, especially with like the David Sandborn, like doo 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 kind of stuff. Yeah, doing as Eric Clapton.
1: <laughs> yeah. um, to be honest, I um I'm not massive on the Lethal Weapon scores. I they certainly are iconic for yeah. for what they represent and for that type of film for the body action cop movie. But yeah, they're not scores that I really revisit just because no. of purely how uh, how cheesy they are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Die Hard for me. Yeah, it sounds good, and it's a shame that Michael Kamen really never got his kudos for that
0: yeah yeah i was gonna say it looks good as well i was just thinking that the other thing i wanted to mention is the um the special effects in this film these are done by uh ilm yeah taking over from uh, boss films who did the uh, original and um yeah i think the uh, playing effects and everything and all the models in this film are, are great yeah it does actually feature the first all digital composite shot at the end which is the last shot in the film but yeah i noticed about that composite as
1: well that for the time, it looks really quite accomplished because there are so many moving parts of that final matte painting as well. Yeah, like yeah. it's clearly not just a singular mat because you've got people moving throughout it as well. You know, you've got like static elements, but you've got people like moving throughout it. And I thought well, it looks actually quite accomplished. Mm. And um to find out as well that it was a fully digital mat, fully digital composite, that is, it's a little moment in film history.
0: Mm-hmm. It's very well executed, especially when you compare it to something like Air Force One, oh, which is God, also yeah. dealing with planes. But with Die Hard 2, you're dealing with miniatures at its zenith. Whereas with something like Air Force One, you're dealing with them trying out CGI, but it's very much in its infancy. Yeah, And the difference is quite profound. <laughs> I think mean, that's yeah. the real Achilles heel of that film is it's effects work. That part really falls yeah, apart. Yeah, it does. That film.
1: Yeah. It's a Wolfgang Peterson film as well. And his films traditionally look really good. Mm. But even in the way in which that CGI plane is shot is really bad as well. Yeah, it's not It's good. like everything falls apart for that moment. It's clear that nobody felt comfortable doing that or knew quite how
0: to present it in a uh, digital way. No. There's large sections of the airport shots which are entirely models. Yeah. All the stuff with the... Um, was it the skywalk and any shot of the tower (laughs) i was watching a documentary earlier about that and apparently the um they needed to give the effect of something moving on the top of the tower so what the guy did somebody made a model of a um a striptease model and then just stuck it up and it's on like a little roundabout thing and it's just (laughs) that that's going around (laughs) up, up in the top i think the most famous shot out of the whole film which is a something that I knew about long before I saw the film, is the uh, ejector seat shot.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, that was on, like, every advert. Yeah. And the poster as well. I remember the fire behind him and the the ejector seat up at the camera.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely (laughs) the most iconic part of this film. Yeah. Because I think I had it in a special effects book. They had a whole section on how they did that and everything. So It looks really good as well. Oh, yeah, it does, yeah. There's one thing I wanted to ask you whether you'd seen... It's a very famous thing that um, shortly after its theatrical run, it ran on, uh, I think, a a station called TBS. Is this the dubbed version? The dubbed version. In order to get, like, a clean version, they did a dub, but completely fucked it up.
1: There's a few films out there that have got really famous dubs, and this one is one of them. Yeah, and yeah, it's supposed to be. I've not seen anything of it. Have you not seen? Oh, I watched some of it this morning. I know it's on YouTube, and I've read about it. It's hilarious. I've read some of the things that they're supposed to say, but I've not seen the video yet. But yeah, it's like one of the most famous bad dubs. Yeah, But there's a whole host of really bad TV dubs. We don't really get that anymore, do we? No. In the 90s, because films were moving on to TV at such greater speed as well, and the rules for television were so remarkably different than what it was for film at the cinema, that you had all of these films, all of these action films with crazy dubs. And I kind of wish we still lived in that world. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but it's so ridiculously amateurish. I mean, e- even the sound goes down a bit when there's new lines as well, and it's like oh really recorded in someone's bedroom. Whoever they got to like redub, they don't sound anything like any of the actors that they're redubbing either. Especially <laughs> Bruce Willis's, it just doesn't sound. The best one is obviously the one that gets quoted is "Yippee ki yay, Mr. Falcon." That's the one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's brilliant. It really is. Yeah,
1: I'm gonna get on that straight away. It's phenomenal. <laughs> Okay, so moving on to the stats and facts, that part of the podcast where we go over the release of this film, the money that it made at the box office, how it was received by critics, and you know what audiences generally think of this film. So starting with the box office, well, let's go through the budget first for this film was $70 million, so $70 million, which was an increase on Die Hard's $28 million. Quite a significant increase, in fact. Yeah. Uh, the box office opened to $21 million at the US box office and then to a total of $117 million in the US and $240 million worldwide. And just to give you an idea of the films that it was up against, well, Die Hard 2 opened, unsurprisingly, at number one. And I will say as well, Andy, it is logged on box office mojo as die hard 2 not die hard 2 die harder mm. just die hard 2 yeah the thing that i think might solve this issue is how it's logged officially with the bbfc because they have to take the official title of the movie yeah i think you'll find it'll be die hard 2 so if we go fight yes yeah, so you're right oh wait no okay so here we go so <laughs> die hard 2 has had several titles over the years. So Die Hard 2 in 1990 was Die Hard 2. Yeah. Then when it was re-released in 2002, it was Die Hard 2, Die Harder, but it looks like it's once more reverted back to Die Hard 2 again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it seems to be like a constant back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a strange one. So number one was Die Hard 2. Number two was Days of Thunder. Number three was... A soon to be popcorn digest episode, Dick Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> number four was Jetsons the movie. Don't Ooh. remember a Jetsons movie, oh, but yeah, I out do. At that time, I, think I don't remember that. Very much belated. Oh, was it?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, number five was The Amazing Total Recall. Number six was Another 48 Hours. Number seven was Robocop 2. Number eight was Ghost Dad. I think that was the uh, everyone's favourite Bill Cosby Bill Cosby <laughs> film <laughs> with the zeppin and the zoopin and the... Oh, anyway and no. uh, number 9 was Gremlins to The New Batch and number 10 was Pretty Woman so that is like a stacked
0: weekend. <laughs> it's incredible actually that is just like classic after classic there <laughs>
1: apart from I mean, Ghost Dad. <laughs> <laughs> apart from Ghost Dad wait no especially Ghost Dad especially Ghost Dad <laughs> <laughs> I heard mean, it was Jimmy Savile's favourite film oh uh. <laughs> Okay, so, oh <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, even like you say, we say classic after classic, it's it's more so even that, like, it's sequels to classics as well, like yeah. Robocop 2 and Another 48 Hours. So it's like, it's in a weekend where there are several very strong franchise films. So it's We're living uh... in
0: the 21st century. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, yeah, I just want to, as well, just to go back to the, the numbers, yeah. to give you an idea of what Die Hard was made with. So... As I mentioned, Die Hard's budget was significantly lower at $28 million. For its first wide release, it made $7 million worldwide. It made $83 million domestically and $141 million worldwide, which is like $100 million below Die Hard 2. Mm. So Die Hard 2 is a, a significant improvement in terms of the box office. And it makes me wonder, I wonder why Fox decided to put the brakes on the series for a little while after this. Because moving over to the critics reception to the film it wasn't poorly received either it was actually it's not the shining success at die hard was but the rotten tomato score for example is 69 percent, 69 with an average <laughs> rating of 6.28 out of 10 so it's not a runaway success but it's, mm. people are referring to it essentially as a solid
0: sequel it's um yeah. solidly fresh the only thing i can think of who um bankrolled Hudson Hawk. Oh, that could
1: be the winning
0: answer right there. Yeah, because that's the only thing I can think of is that the failure of Hudson Hawk may have put the brakes so, on. Hudson
1: Hawk, yeah, 1991, and it
0: is a... Oh, it's a tri-star picture. Is it a tri-star? Okay. It's a tri-star picture, yeah. But even so, I think even if the studio hadn't been involved in it, I think... Something like Hudson Hawk may have done a bit of damage.
1: Yes, because it certainly did some damage to the Bruce Willis brand in terms of the way that studios perceived him as at that time as well. I know that he's mentioned that before. But yeah, so so as mentioned, it's 69% on Rotten Tomatoes and the consensus says it lacks the fresh thrills of its predecessor, but Die Hard 2 still works as an over-the-top and reasonably taught big-budget sequel with plenty of set pieces to paper over the plot deficiencies. I kind of mostly agree with that as well Mm -hmm. and uh, I've gone for another obviously Empire review as well for the critics review and this is from William Thomas at Empire magazine and he said it's more violent more explosive and even bigger than the original this ticks all of the sequel boxes but as long as Willis is in the vest and playing McLean it's hard to care about his shortcomings
0: he's not in a vest in this one (laughs) yeah he's really not no (laughs) (laughs) this <laughs> is <laughs> what's what's going on empire in fact he's actually only in the vest in the first one and the third one
1: yeah exactly And they gave it three out of five i mean that sounds like it's a much more stronger review really yeah yeah to say they gave it three out of five overall they said it's entertaining nonsense that doesn't quite manage to recapture the magic of the original still there are some nice moments here and willis is on solid ground as the iconic john McClane. i do agree with that yeah However, Empire Magazine website does need some updating because they have the running time at zero minutes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So it's a very short film. You might not have seen the film then, like if he's talking about a vest and
1: stuff. (laughs) I don't know. Okay, and just moving over to the IMDb score as well. The IMDb score for this film is 7.2 out of 10, and the audience score for it on Rotten Tomatoes is 70%, with an average rating of 3.69 out of 5. Honestly, there we go. Nice. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's all painting a picture of a solid film, if unremarkable, just a rather solid sequel. It's fine. Exactly, and I would say, I would agree, I would say that Die Hard 2, as much as I've... I can pick it apart and mull over its shortcomings. I don't mind watching it. I think it's, no, it's I think fine. it's fine. One more thing that I do want to talk about when it comes to Die Hard as well, and we've talked about it being the trilogy. And I know that you won't really have much experience with this, but one of my big experiences of Die Hard is the Die Hard trilogy PlayStation game. <laughs> and I can't really speak about these films without just making mention of how good those games were because it, it was one disc it came with three arcade games, and each one was based on a Die Hard film. You had almost like a platformer a level-by-level game where you were going up Nakatomi Plaza, defeating <laughs> the bad guys, looking for a bomb on each floor. And then you had a second game, which was an on-the-rails shooter for Die Hard 2 in the airport. And if you had a light gun that you could point at your screen, that was great. And then you had Die Hard 3. That was one of the hardest racing games I'd ever played in my life where you're in a taxi yeah. and your your thing is you've got to drive about New York yeah. and explode bombs at different places in New York before they go off and kill everybody. And if you fail, like a fucking nuke goes off over New York. <laughs> so, And all the time as well while you're driving, you get this guy doing like an impersonation of Bruce Willis going, why me? What's this got to do with me? And I still say that when I'm in the car with Ali and, you know, something happens on the road. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Die Hard, the PlayStation game, I know it's going to have many fans out there and I was certainly a firm fan of that game. Loved it. Uh, do you have any final thoughts to add about Die Hard 2, Die Harder?
0: Yeah, well, this is a question for the whole series because I had this thought and we're talking about Die Hard not really needing a sequel because it's very self-contained, but... Also within that it's like why after the events of Die Hard 1 is John McClane still just a cop. That's a really good question. You would have thought he'd be like you know in some sort of special forces or task force or gone into some more specialist field.
1: Why isn't he taking his experience around teaching people like <laughs> you know what he did? Why isn't he like Got a fucking book deal. <laughs> and,
0: um... Yeah, yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> it's like it's uh is a bit baffling that he's even by you know the third one. He's still you know he's a washed up cop in that one. It's like yeah.
1: What? Well, I buy and die hard three because of the John McClane that it presents. That he's um he's his own worst enemy. Mm. <laughs> so, I, I like, I get what Die Hard 3 presents. But yeah, in this one, especially because he's still like a relatively sane and put together guy that isn't at all haunted by any like post traumatic stress <laughs> of, of his time in Nakatomi because he's a man, yeah. you know? Yeah, why is he still just a cop? And why is everybody almost like treating him with disdain? You did that thing, but fuck, You did that you know. thing in Nakatomi, yeah. but that doesn't matter shit to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, fucking hell, man. You killed like 20 terrorists.
0: Yeah. Uh, I had another thought as well, like uh, going back to maybe why there was a gap. I'm thinking, is it because there were so many other Die Hard type movies? Die Hard came, on a... Like Under Siege and things like
1: that. Well, that became a phrase, didn't it? film started to be pitched as Die Hard on a... And then dot, dot, yeah. dot and it pretty much invented the whole idea of high-concept film. Mm. So, yeah, I imagine so. I imagine that the, the series was saturated with those type of films and to a point which, like I say, Die Hard with a Vengeance is not that type of film. No. Even though it does feel like, for me, a, a die-hard film, you can't really describe it as being die-hard on a dot, 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 or die-hard in a but bop, Well, it's die-hard in the city. <laughs> I guess so, <laughs> yeah. it is, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that might have something to do with it. Hudson Hawk, plus that kind of idea, trying to crack a script as well Mm. that stands out against that landscape. I imagine that was a tough tough nut to crack. Yeah. Do you think this series has got anywhere else to go now or do you think it's done? I honestly think it's done. If Bruce Willis was an actor that was still trying... Mm. because I do think that this whole thing hinges on two elements and that is the director and Bruce Willis and I think you can find a director with passion for the Die Hard series to make a Die Hard film but I don't think Bruce Willis has the passion and I think because of that because of where Bruce Willis is in his career the series essentially has to die Mm. it has to go away there's a reboot in its future but they're going to find that without a Bruce Willis in his prime and without the elements that made Die Hard the success it was, it's just another action film. Mm. All it's going to have is the Die Hard name. If Bruce Willis still cared about acting in any way, shape or form, despite the films that he's making now, if he was still showing that he had any interest or passion, then I would say that, yes, there is still chance to make one like final Die Hard film. But I can't see that. I can't see that right now. Yeah. Okay, but, I mean, all that said, I still think Die Hard 2, Die Hard, though of the trilogy, it's obviously the lesser one for me. Still a solid action film. Still yep. a solid Die Hard film as well. Still feels Die Hard. Okay, and thank you for listening to this latest episode of Popcorn Digest. So, obviously, that is the second of our two Christmas specials, and we both hope you have a lovely, lovely Christmas. And you can expect to hear us again We'll be back with uh, our next season of Popcorn Digest on the 29th of January. But until then, it's bye from myself. Have a lovely Christmas. And I'm going to kick your fucking ass. <laughs>
0: Yippee-ki-yay, motherfuckers. yippee mister Falcon.
1: <laughs> Thanks for listening. When we finally kiss goodnight How I hate going out in the storm But
0: if you really hold me tight We're still goodbyeing But as long as you love me so Let it snow, let it snow